Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining us again. This is Pop Culture Confidential and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. This week, I'm very happy to talk about the legend, role model, and real badass U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, my conversation is with someone who knows her very well. Daniel Stiepelman is the screenwriter of the new movie On the Basis of Sex, which is based on a major part of her life. And he also happens to be Justice Ginsburg's nephew. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is only the second woman to hold the role of U.S. Supreme Court Justice, and she's been battling gender discrimination since the 70s. She's still working hard at age 85. In our celebrity-obsessed culture, it's been pretty cool the past few years to see how she's become a cultural icon. There's been RBG memes, books, a documentary, and now this major motion picture starring Felicity Jones as Justice Ginsburg and Army Hammer as her husband Martin. The film is directed by Mimi Leader, who we know from The Leftovers, and written by my guest Daniel Stiepelman. On the Basis of Sex centers around Ruth Bader Ginsburg's early years as a young law student, a young professor, and then as co-litigator with her husband Martin Ginsburg on a 1972 seemingly minor tax case. The case involved an unmarried man who was denied a $600 tax deduction for taking care of his ailing mother. Charles Moritz was denied this tax deduction because of his gender. According to the IRS, women were the caregivers. It was with this case that Ginsburg would find her foundational argument against sex-based discrimination. The film is also part love story, recounting the beginnings of Marty and Ruth's long relationship. There are 178 laws that differentiate on the basis of sex. Women can't work overtime. We have to get credit cards in our husband's name. We're not allowed to work in This is a you think you can change the country? You should look to her generation. They're taking to the streets. Protests are important, but changing the culture means nothing if the law doesn't change. What did you say your name was? Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I want to be a lawyer. I want to represent clients in pursuit of justice. So they're going to give you a corner office? I wasn't what they were looking for. One said women are too emotional to be lawyers. Another told me a woman graduating top of her class must be a real ball buster. I worked hard. I did everything I was supposed to, and I excelled. I started by asking Daniel Stiepelman about the case at the center of the film. Your movie centers around a real landmark case. Maybe you could quickly describe it for us. Sure. Well, what's interesting about it is that, you know, I think in retrospect it's a landmark case, but at the time nobody really thought much of it outside of Ruth and Marty. You know, because you know, when I went back to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals and said, "Hey, I want to write a movie about this case. Can you send me a transcript? Do you have any recordings?" They said, "Oh no, nobody kept any of that. We would have no reason to." Wow. And how did this change future rulings? Uh, well, that's what you know. That's what the movie's about. Is that you know, for it, as Ruth was very quick to point out to me in the research process. Uh, you know, this wasn't the first time it had ever occurred to anyone that you know, the U.S. Constitution, the 14th Amendment, says all people must be treated equally under the law. Uh, and the law at that point, that amendment was about 100 years old at that point. And for 100 years, women had been going in front of federal courts and saying, we should be considered people under the law. And for 100 years, uh, the court said, no, that's not what the law means. And so, you know, what changed is this, was, this became the first precedent 
in the federal court to say to say that, that that should no longer be the case, that women should be considered as equal under the under the law. Um, and I had misstated slightly. This is the first case that was argued right. um, that made that point successful. You are a screenwriter, and of course, uh, as most people know, you also have a family connection here with this story. And I'm curious, as a kid, was there a particular moment you remember where you understood, oh my gosh, my aunt is Justice Ginsburg? <laughs> well, as a kid, I found it mostly convenient. I mean, I, well, is there a moment where I realized my aunt, oh my gosh, is, is Justice Ginsburg? That was probably at the swearing in. <laughs> um, but in terms of uh, you know how momentous she was as a kid, it was always very confusing. Mm-hmm. Because people, you know, would be like at the Thanksgiving dinner table, and someone would point to my aunt, you know, across the table, very quiet, eating her turkey incredibly slowly, um, <laughs> and and they would say she changed the world, and I found that confusing because I had in my head, um, you know, an image of what a what a feminist from the '70s was. And I think it's everybody's, every American's uh, vision of that, which is Gloria Steinem. You know, someone who stands up in front of a crowd and brings everyone to their feet. And here was my aunt, who was very quiet and very intellectual and very precise in her language in a way that was, you know, like you would talk to her and there would be long silences because she would plan out exactly what she was going to say. And and so she didn't seem like that charismatic character. And so I always found that confusing and fascinating. And when I had the idea for this movie, kind of the first image I had in my head was this idea of that there should be a moment in the film where there is a rally and Ruth Bader Ginsburg is walking across it to get to work. Right. What I came to understand was that, was that you know, it takes two sides of the coin. You need a Gloria Steinem to move the culture and you need a Ruth Bader Ginsburg to change the law. Right. So sustainable change comes from changing both at the same time. And how did she feel about it when you approached her and said, I want to write your story or this part of your story? I think she was kind of skeptical at first. I said there, well, first of all, I, you know, this is, I'm an, at that point, I'm an aspiring screenwriter, right? So it's not even like she's any reason to believe I know how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, uh, and I went to her and I said, I want to write this film. And she said, why that case? She said, I argued bigger cases. I argued cases in front of the Supreme Court. Um, and, but for me, this was always the story of a marriage. It was always about the fact that Ruth and Marty, had, it was the only case that Ruth and Marty ever argued together. It was the two of them fighting in court right. for what they had you know, magically managed to create at home, which was really quality. And so for me, that was always what the case was, that's always what the movie was about. It was always the story of a marriage. I think a lot of people can write case law, but you know, the, the privilege that I had is that I was in a unique position to know the family and to have seen them behind closed doors. And then her response, which I know I've said also, was uh, she said, and I quote, if that's how you want to spend your time. <laughs> I, I have this perception, which may be wrong, um, but that, that she gave gives many interesting notes. Do you have an example of, of when she, I'm sure she read your script, what, anything she wanted to change or what she thought? Well, she read the script like it was a contract. <laughs> so I would send her the script. Really? I... And so like, at one point I sent her a draft and, and I gave her a call and she says, oh, Daniel, I'm in the middle of reading the Affordable Care Act. Can you call me back in a half hour? <laughs> and so I, you know, I hang on, I call her back a half hour later and she says, okay, page one. And then she, I mean, <laughs> you've seen the movie. The like the opening shot of a movie of the movie is a bunch of shoes, and and Ruth is wearing high heels. 
Mm-hmm. And she says, in those days, I used to walk to Harvard, so I never wore heels. <laughs> like, oh, oh my goodness, she this already is like the, the second pitch. sentence of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is going to be a long conversation. And so then, then I had to teach her a little bit the difference between, you know, this is, by the way, this is not technically accurate. And by the way, if this was in the movie, you know, I, this would not be a, I would not feel that this is an accurate portrait of me, which are two different things. And, and, you know, so the heels one I kind of debated with, I said, well, it's orientation, it's a special occasion that you think you might have. And she said, oh, okay, I guess I can live with that. But for the most part, her notes were she wanted the law to be right, and she wanted the law, mm-hmm. the way the law is practiced to be right. And she wanted Marty to be right. Not surprising, right. And, but what was fascinating is there never, never once was there ever a note that came from like a place of ego where she would stumble in the script and, and then would say, well, I didn't stumble in this way. She would get to a scene mm-hmm. where she stumbles and she would say, well, that's more dramatic. It has to be that way. Okay, yeah, interesting. I was wondering while you were working on this and, and studying this, if you anything surprised you more than you thought it would about women and power and men that you really hadn't thought about previously in your life? You know what I realized? It was interesting because, you know, I'm a man writing a woman as you said. And I wondered if I was going to be able to do that. I wonder, you know, I wondered, you know, how do I get into the head of, you know, of, of a woman? And, and, you know, what I learned in the process of writing is that if you're sitting there and you're writing and you're thinking, what would a woman say? You've already failed. Right. <laughs> right? Because you have to treat every character as an individual. It's not what would a woman say. It's what would Ruth say? What would Ruth do in the circumstance? What I learned was that the process of writing a woman is exactly the same as writing any other character, but what changes is the way every other character in the room responds when they talk. And how is that? Well, just the, you know, I, I don't think Mel Wolf would talk to Marty the same way he talked to Ruth, you know, if Marty had said the exact same words. Yeah, I mean, of course you worked with Mimi Leader, one of yeah. my favorite directors. Mine too. I'm sure that you bounce these things back and forth. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of times. I mean, obviously, Mimi lived it um, in a way that I haven't. And so that was, uh, you know, first of all, the, the scenes where she felt like it worked, was, that, was a, that was a very confidence booster for me, that she was like, yes, this is, this is how this feels. You got that right here. Mm-hmm. A scene that I think is a nice example of the, the dynamic is, you know, there was a moment in the writing process before Mimi was attached to the project we were in the first draft. My wife and I were bickering about something. I'm sure it was very important. <laughs> but it was the morning we were having an argument. And, and in the middle of the argument, she stopped and she looked in the mirror and she smiled because she was putting on blush. And I was so fascinated by that, by like the fact that she had to like stop and, and like have a facial, like an emotion right. on her face that was so different than the way she actually felt because she was putting on makeup. And I was like, oh, that's great. I have to use that in the movie. <laughs> and then this is how seriously I was taking the argument, clearly. And, um, and so seeing that, I, I think it took like a guy's outsider perspective of watching that to pick up on that moment and say, that's a great visual moment for a movie. Then Mimi comes on and she takes that moment and she adds to it this emotional nuance that turned it into, I think, my favorite scene in the movie, which is when Ruth is putting on her makeup right before court and she's practicing her smile. Oh, right. 
And so I think that's sort of like the, the, a beautiful example of the, of the outsider perspective and the insider perspective coming together and creating something better than, than either one on its own. A lot of the people in, in, that you're dealing with in the movie, I mean, it's the same people. It's the same issues. I mean, we still have going through the Kavanaugh case. We still have lots of things happening with, you know, Planned Parenthood, LGBTQ rights, and some things are hanging in the balance. And, and I'm wondering, Justice Ginsburg today, does she feel positive, disillusioned? I mean, what does she feel? What, how do you feel that her main concerns are as we speak? You don't want that to be your last question, because I can't speak for Ruth. I'm not her spokesperson. I don't want to pretend I can speak for her. Um, what I can tell you, I think, reasonably, as, as her nephew and as someone who has a close relationship with her, is that you know, what undergirds all of her strengths, uh, in my experience, is just a perpetual sense of optimism. You can feel that. You can absolutely, you can absolutely feel that. She's always looking, you know, and I think it's 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 part of her role. It's part of the reason why she's such an, uh, an effective Supreme Court justice, even when she's in the minority of an opinion, is because she's looking. She's always looking 10, 15, 20, 50 years down the road, and looking at you know what am I writing today and how is it going to impact future generations? When is my dissent going to become the law? And sometimes that happens immediately, like early Ledbetter, and sometimes that takes generations. Um, you know, she often quotes my Uncle Martin, who, who said, he used to say, you know, the, the symbol of the United States isn't the, isn't the eagle, it's the pendulum. Mm. And things will continue to swing back and forth. But some changes feel permanent. And some changes feel like they have... Um, like they'll stick, and like I said, I think, like I said, just to bring back the whole thing up, and I said, like I said, I think in my answer to the first question is uh, is that is that those sustainable changes come from changing the culture and the law. That you can't just change one; you've got to do both. Right, right. And right now, I think the culture and the law feel like they're in different places, and that's that's jarring for everybody. Lastly, what's what's coming up for you? Your next project? Oh, how nice of you to care. Uh, <laughs> of course, I'm, I care. There are some fascinating things. I'm uh, I actually on Friday. Well, it doesn't matter. But I'm. Uh, <laughs> I think the next thing you'll see for me in theaters, let me put it that way, mm-hmm. is uh, is an adaptation of a young adult novel called Out of My Mind, mm-hmm. the novel by Shannon Draper. And uh, I'm also adapting a giant sci-fi movie by one of my favorite writers, Ursula Le Guin. Wow, that's cool. Or rather, adapting a sci-fi book by one of my favorite writers, Ursula Le Guin. Um, that was a project I'm particularly proud of because I built it myself because I knew that, you know, Hollywood would, uh, will pigeonhole you. <laughs> so after On the Basis of Sex, I was, uh, you know, People were, I was constantly, my agents were constantly getting called, with Sylvia Plath, Gertrude Stein, you know. Right. <laughs> and um, and uh, Gloria Steinem. And so I was like, no, 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 if I'm going to do something else, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to sort of prove it on my own. And so I reached out to Ursula, and we spent sort of 18 months in touch before she finally gave me the rights to her book, and, and I've been building this thing, so I'm very excited about that. Well, I can't wait to see that or to hear more about that. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Nice talking to you. Thank you. Nice talking to you. Bye. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you so much to Daniel Stiepelman. On the Basis of Sex premieres in Sweden on International Women's Day, March 8th, and it's already out in theaters in the U.S.
Thanks so much for joining us this week. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show was edited by Katrin Lundell, and I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. See you next week. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to the Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.